bad habits, lots of um, things about us that are not very Christian-like. And so the question is, how do we go from being that kind of person to transforming, having our character transformed into the kind of person that looks like Christ and talks like Christ and acts like Christ? And so to, to think through how that happens, we're using the, the idea of virtue, which is these character traits. A virtue is a character trait um, that's the type of person, it's a strength of character that characterizes someone who reaches the goal, in this case, the goal to be like Christ, to be with Christ in eternity. And so virtue, how virtue works is you make small choices. You make steady, reasoned, thought-out choices. And day after day after day after day, as you make those choices, they become second nature. They start to reshape your character. They start to transform your character. It's a loop. What you do eventually becomes a part of who you are. And so we've thought through how virtue works in the idea of a Christian framework, how you and I have our character transformed. And we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, there are three theological virtues, three things that characterize people who are like Christ and who will reign with him forever on the new heavens and new earth, and their faith, hope, and love. And all three of these are skills that will last into the future. And so we've talked about faith, and we've talked about hope, and today we'll talk about love. And so Matthew chapter 22, we'll pick it up in verse 34. Scriptures say this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, in the Old Testament, you'll find about 613 different laws, different commandments. Some of them are for you to do something. Others are for you to avoid something, to not do something else. And so you've got this, like, few hundred of different laws. And so the way that lawyers work sometimes is lawyers will come in and look at a complex code of law, and they will simplify it. They'll dilute it down to a few things, a few key things that you should focus in on, that you should key in on. So if you have a business, you might bring in a lawyer that specializes in whatever business that you are operating in. And they might say, okay, here's the big legal code. You need to really focus on these two laws. These are really, they're going to nail you, okay? If you get these down, everything else will follow. Uh, These, no one really focuses on anymore, okay? These, you can probably get away with. This is what this means. This is what this means. This is how you would do and follow this certain law, okay? And so rabbis would constantly do this with their disciples. The disciples would come to them and ask them, hey, with all these laws, 613 of them, what does it mean? How do we focus in on this? How do we complete this? There's a famous story of a, a, a disciple coming up to a rabbi and asking him to tell him the law while he stands on one leg. And so unless this guy's really good at standing on one leg, he's going to need to simplify things, get it down, okay? Here we have Jesus' answer. What's the greatest commandment? What's the one thing in the law that we should focus on? Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. and says it's love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your strength. With everything that you have, love him. And then he, he adds something to it. He says the second one's like it. Love your neighbor as well. We call this the double law. Uh, the double law of love, okay? You love God and you love your neighbor. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, the Torah and the Nevi'im, the whole Old Testament, all of the law, they hang on these two commandments. Jesus says, if you want to do what God desires for your life, you'll love him and you'll love the people around you. This is what God wants of your life. Love. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, if you flip to John chapter 13, uh, we'll get Jesus talking to his disciples, and he'll add uh, a couple things to this double love. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 35. 
This is right after Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Uh, and so he uh, sits down, washes their feet, and he's going to instruct them uh, and give them some directions. And in chapter 13, verse 31, we'll read this. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, verse 33, Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus adds two things here that are important for this idea of the double love, love of God and love of your neighbor. The first is that whatever this love looks like, whatever it's going to be defined as, it takes its cue from Jesus' love. He says, as I have loved you, that's how you should be loving one another. So in the context of John 13, right, with the foot washing scene, the self-sacrifice, the service, serving one another, and then I think the bigger picture, right, when Jesus goes to the cross, he says, as I have loved you, that's how you should be loving other people. And then he says this, it should be your identity marker, People should know that you're with me, that you're part of my group, that you're following me by watching you love people around you the way that I've loved you. Now, unfortunately, Christians are known for a lot of different things, okay? <laughs> Usually love is not one of them. Usually the way that we love one another is not one of them. But Jesus says, your love should look like my love, and your love should be how people can tell that you're with me, okay? And now let's flip to 1 John chapter 4. This is where we're going to camp out this, camp out this morning. 1 John chapter 4, John is one of the inner three disciples, and so he has walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, seen Jesus act out this love. And through his gospel and through his letters, his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, also later on Revelation, you'll see a man who's been, I think, transformed by the love that Jesus showed him, and who sees how important the, the priority of our love um, for our Christian lives, how important it is for you and I to be characterized by love um, so 1 John 4, we'll pick it up in verse 7 here. A few years ago, we preached through the book of 1 John. Uh, I don't know who's here for that or not here for that. Uh, so whenever we, we go back here, it brings back memories to me. 1 John 4, we'll pick it up again in verse 7. John says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, was revealed to us, was shown to us. We've seen it in this, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. There's that Greek word, telos. That we've been saying in virtue, right? His love will be complete in us. It will find its goal. It will be matured. Verse 13, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, capital S. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. A second time. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we 
in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here we see again this theme in John. Okay, we've been loved by God. We love God back and we love our brothers as well. John is a very black and white kind of guy, if you remember from when we preached through his book. There's not a lot of gray for John. There's not a lot of in between. You're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. And there's just the one or the two. He says, if you claim to love God, but you're not loving the people around you, John says, you're just a liar. You're just lying to yourself. You're lying to other people around you. It's not true. The characteristic way of relating to other people as a Christian, the virtue of a true, completed, mature, grown Christian is that they love God and they love the people around them. So let's talk about how, how love is a virtue, okay? Again, a virtue is one of these traits that's going to get us to the goal, get us to the end that we're going toward, and also help us to thrive while we're there, help us to flourish while we're there. So how does love function in that sense? We'll define love this morning as the unconditional seeking of a full, joyous life for another through every thought and through every action. The unconditional seeking of a full and joyous life for somebody else with every thought with every action. John says, we've seen love. If we're going to define love, it looks like Jesus dying on the cross for us. That's what love is. Now, we use the word love in a lot of different ways. Um, the word love is a very malleable word. We fall in love. Usually what we mean is we've fallen in lust, okay? Um, you love someone after years and years and years of living with them and sacrificing for them and, and living life together with them. You fall in lust. Um, some of you use love in just a sense of enjoyment, right? I love that chair. I love this macaroni and cheese. I just enjoy it, right? We don't really mean this kind of unconditional seeking for the good of somebody else. But love is redemptive, according to the scriptures. It has this aspect of seeking the good for somebody else. It's, it's self-oriented. It's, it's pointing away from ourselves to other people. Love, it's manifested, we've seen it, it's been revealed to us through Jesus on the cross. Now how does it function as a virtue? Why does it last? Why is it an important skill for you and I to develop now? For us to get to the goal and to thrive while we're there. Um, well, two things. The first reason I think love functions as a virtue is because God himself is characterized by love. He says this twice here in First John. God is love in verse 8 um, and again later on in verse 16 here, he says, God is love. Now, in the Greek, this is not a, um, a phrase that you can switch around. So it's not that love is God, but that God in his essence, in his character, in his nature, is defined by this type of love. This is who he is from all of eternity. This is who he will always be. Every action he takes flows out of this kind of love that he's had and is. At its very core, God is love. Now, when we think of God being love, we've got to think of the Trinity, okay? Christians believe that God is triune, which means there are three persons to God. You have the Father, you have the Son, and then you have the Holy Spirit. You'll see this is a good Trinitarian text. You've got God, God the Father, you've got the Son being sent for us and dying, and then you've got the Spirit being given to us in verse 13, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, um, we need to think of the Trinity in the context of eternity. What is the Trinity doing for all of eternity, before you and I are around, and then even still when you and I are around. Well, they're existing in a community, a community of perfect love, 
pass to and fro between the three persons of the Trinity. The Father is loving the Son and the Spirit, and the Son is loving the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit is loving the Father and the Son. Um, and the Trinity, if you, if you think about the Trinity, you can watch it develop, that concept, these three persons of God, um, in the Western world of Christianity and the Eastern world of Christianity. And they develop differently. And I think that's one of the reasons you and I have a hard time understanding the Trinity. So we come from the Western development of the Trinity. What Western people do is this. Throughout history, they start with the idea that God is one. There's one God, monotheism. There's only one God to be worshipped and obeyed and to be loyal to. And then they start to think through, how can there be three persons if there's only one God? Because we know about the Father, we know about the Son, and we know about the Spirit. And so we think through how those three persons can exist inside of the one Godhead. But the Eastern Christians, the Eastern Orthodox Christians, they come to the Trinity from a different angle. They start with the three persons. And then they notice that all three persons have the same character, the same nature, the same essence. If you were to watch uh, or to see a picture, an icon of the Eastern Orthodox Christians painting the Trinity, you see three full-grown men sitting at a table together, eating together. Again, that's not how we would paint it, right? We, we would emphasize we'd start with the oneness, then somewhere inside of that oneness we'd find room for three persons. But they start with the assumption, we know God the Father, and then we met this guy named Jesus. And we learned that we could talk about Jesus the same way we can talk about God the Father, that he was eternal, that he was part of creation, he created all things, that he's all-powerful and all-knowing. And then we met the Spirit. He was given to us, we've experienced him, and we decided that we could also talk about the Spirit the way we talk about the Father and the Son. He's eternal. He was part of creating the entire universe. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing. And we've met these three persons, separate, distinct persons, and they all have the same characteristics of the divine. They're all, in that sense, God. And they've existed for all of eternity in this loving, self-sacrificial, glorifying the other relationship. You see, uh, if you think back to John 13, where we read, right? The Father's going to glorify me. Why? Because I've glorified him. This is the context of all of eternity, this community among the Trinity. And so the reason love is a virtue, the reason that's a skill that you and I should start to practice and get good at, is because if we want to be in relationship with the triune God, we need to start to learn how his relationships work. We need to start to look more and more like what he looks like at his core, at his essence. It'd be like trying to be in a relationship with someone who is the exact opposite of you. There's going to be tension and clashing, right? If I love sports and I just can't get enough of sports and then my whole world revolves around sports, it's not going to be good if I marry someone who hates sports, right? It's going to clash over and over and over again. That relationship is not going to work. If the triune God is love, not just that he loves, he is love, then it's not going to work very well when we get to eternity and we're the opposite of love. That relationship is not going to work. We develop the skill of love because that's who God is. And if we're going to be in relationship with him, we're going to need to get closer and closer to that through his grace, through the working of his spirit. Now, the second reason is because there's this um, principle of human worship and human character that's universally true, and it's this. You become what you worship. You reflect that which you value, which you hold up, which you give esteem to. Um, and so you see this with, with kids, um, with the people they hang out with, okay? If you hang out with someone and you think they're cool, right? They just hung the moon, you're going to start dressing like them. 
and you're going to start talking like them, and you're going to pick up their characteristics. Think about who your friends are, who you spend the most time with. If you took some time, you could probably come to, to grasp and figure out a few different phrases that you now say because you heard them say it. A few different jokes you tell because they've told the jokes. We've got our, our drummer, normally on, on Sunday morning, Chris Bowers. Uh, he says, what's up, yo, when he sees people. I was just saying, what's up, yo? And I, I start, started saying that, okay? I see people I'm like, what's up, yo? Uh, and as I, I mean, it's 100% him. I, that, those three words never came into my mind, right? Until I met him, spent some time with him. That's one of the better examples I could give. <laughs> I'm joking, Chris. That's what happens when you don't come. <laughs> Who knows it's going to come out. Uh, yeah, you, you start to become like what you worship, what you value, who you spend your time with, okay? And this is John's whole point, right? If you claim to know the God who is love, to worship him, to be in a relationship with him, you're going to start to look like that. You're going to start to become a loving person. I mean, it's this cognitive dissonance that's hard to wrap our minds around. When someone who claims to be saved by the cross, this unconditional act of grace, and then they... They're judgmental and they don't extend that grace to other people. I mean, the, the gap in their mind is so large. It's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, haven't you been grasped by the, the love of God that you didn't deserve, that you were opposed to, that came to you unconditionally, and you can't extend that, that grace to other people? I mean, you know who really understands grace and mercy by who extends the most grace and mercy. Those are the people who have really been grasped by that experience, who really understand. The moment you understand that you were a sinner far away from God and he loved you anyways is the moment that you allow other people to experience that same standard, that you give them that freedom as well, that you don't close them off, write them off, get rid of them. Love is a character trait we're going to need. Why? Because that's who God is. And we'll love our neighbor if we, we come to know God, if we come to be in relationship with him. He says, if you're not loving your neighbor, I mean, you're, you're, you're probably lying to yourself, probably lying to other people. Now, you could look for more shape to this idea of love, okay, in the Greek agape. Uh, you could look to 1 Corinthians 13, which we read a few weeks ago, which will list off certain um, um, characteristics of this biblical idea of love, right? It's patient. It's kind. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. And, and you'll realize very quickly, this love is the high bar, right? I mean, Jesus sets the bar pretty high, laying down his life for us. And he says, this is how you should be loving other people. This is why it's a virtue. It's not something that comes naturally to us, right? You can't just wake up one day and be a loving person. If you're waiting for that to happen, it's not going to happen. You'll be an 80-year-old person wondering how come you never started to become loving. Because you never did loving things. You never thought through what is a loving person like? What actions do a loving person um, commit? You never sought to have that character trait, to have that virtue. And so you were never able to fulfill what we saw in, in First Peter, right? To add virtue to our faith. To add these character strengths to our faith. Faith, hope, and love. Um, now, we've thought through with every virtue, with faith and with hope, and we'll do this with love as well, what vices might be. And so a vice works like a virtue, but in the opposite sense. A vice is a character trait that's going to lock you, vice grip, right? It's going to lock you away from who you want to be and where you want to be. And it's easy to fall into these vices. What Some vices might be for love, for the virtue of love. I've got three here. The first would be individualism. Uh, doing it on your own. Doing it by yourself. Isolating yourself from other people. Um, individualism cannot coexist with love. 
Love requires community. Love requires community. Love requires someone else to be the recipient of your love. We live in kind of the American culture, which almost has an incipient individualism to it with the American dream, right? I'll do it. I'll do this on my own. I'll handle it right. You can find it in the church. It's my relationship with Jesus. This individualism with our relationship. We've said it before. Your relationship with Jesus, your faith is, is personal, but it's not private. I mean, it is between you and God, but there's a community that has a relationship with, with God. And even your relationship with God is a relationship of community, not just you and Him, but you and the Father and the Son and you and the Spirit. Individualism, the sense of I can do it myself, it's a vice. It's not going to get you uh, to where you need to go, and it won't help you thrive there when you get there. Um, the second vice I've got down here is manipulation. Um, manipulation or the sense of like self-serving, selfishness. Manipulation works Similar to love, and it's, it's a dangerous one because it looks like love in certain cases. Manipulation is where you love other people as long as they are convenient for you, as long as it works in your best interest. So Aristotle, the, the Greek philosopher a few hundred years before Jesus, who came up with a system of virtue ethics, he determined that there are three types of friendships in the world. That you could take all of the different friends that you have, and they would all fall under one of these three types. The first is friendships of utility. And these are friendships you have with someone who can do something for you and that you can do something for them. Think of this as like your business acquaintances, okay? You're friends with them, you have a bond with them, you talk to them, you have lunch with them, you send them emails and notes and things like that because they have a product that you need or they have a, a partnership that you need to get your product out. Okay, it's, it's friendships of utility. The only reason we're in the same context is because I need you to do something, you need me to do something. The second type of friendship is a friendship of pleasure, a friendship of pleasure. And this would be kind of a shared interest friendship. Um, I enjoy this and you enjoy this. So let's enjoy it together and increase our pleasure in this together. Notice, you know, the friendship is not in the other person. It's in the pleasure that's, that's being taken. And this is, I think, most of our friendships, kind of surface level friendships, right? Um, you like sports. I like sports. We play on the same team. Okay, we'll like sports together. Um, and Aristotle said what, what's interesting about these first two types of friendships is they're temporary. There's no real permanent basis to them. The moment the utility or the pleasure leaves, the friendship leaves. If that person can no longer do something for me, I have no reason to be in community with them anymore. I have no reason to have a friendship with them anymore. And if we're no longer on the same team, sports team, or no longer um, separated, if we're separated by distance you know, or time, our friendship is going to dissolve as well. We can't get pleasure together. We don't have the same shared interest anymore. Um, and he said the only uh, type of friendship that lasts, that's a good friendship, is he called the friendship of the good. And this is where you're friends with somebody because of who they are. You're friends with them not because of something that they can do for you or some kind of pleasure they can give you, but simply because they exist. Now, this would be your close, close friends. Maybe that one friend right, that you've had your entire life. And no matter where life takes you, no matter what happens with your families, no matter where you move with your jobs, there's always that bond between you. And you can see them today. I've not seen them for a few years. And it'd be like nothing ever happened. You'd be talking and telling stories and enjoying them. The friendship of the good. Now, for the, the Christian idea of, of love and community, it wouldn't be that you're loving them necessarily because of who they are, Again, that might be placing too much emphasis, right, in them. The moment they're no longer good, in this sense, you would no longer love them. But this is where Jesus would come and say, no, 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 even if they're not good, you love them. You love them because I've loved you. 
your friendship, your love for them is not based on anything inherent inside of them, whether they can do something for you, give you pleasure, or whether they're good people. This is what Jesus would say in the Gospels. He's going he's gonna to tell his disciples that they need to love their enemies, which is such a, a strange concept. I can't even love my neighbors, okay, much less start working toward loving the people I don't like, loving the people who are my enemies. And Jesus is going to go, man, are you impressed with yourself if you love the people who are good to you? Like, would you really pat yourself on the back there? Like, even, even Gentile, even people who don't have faith can do that. That's not like a, a higher level moral uh, decision, capability, okay? Loving people who love you. Um, I, I've thought about this before, and I've had some pushback, so, so I've modified a little bit. But I would think, I mean, unless there's someone who's like a psychopath, I guess like 100% through and through psychopath, even like hardened criminals, in a sense, would love the people who love them. If someone is good to them, if someone has provided something for them or can do something for them, they'd show some sort of love toward that person. I mean, again, that's not like a higher level moral skill. Jesus says, but, but my people love their enemies. You would be good. You would seek the good unconditionally, work toward the redemption of the people who don't like you, people who you don't like, the people who annoy you, the people who you want to walk away from. This is love. A vice individualism, another vice, manipulation, only loving if it works out for you. Jesus is going to say, that's not how we do things. That's not this kind of love. And then the third one, kind of obvious here, would be hate, okay? Uh, getting to the point where you completely write somebody off. You say, there's no possible way that anything good can come out of this person. Um, I, whatever they've done to me, whatever kind of grudge I'm holding on them, okay, it's completely off limits. There's not even the possibility of love. I hate that kind of person. Now, again, the, the point of vices, the reason we want to walk away from vices is because we won't need them in the future. When you're in eternity with God, you will have no use for the skill of individualism. It's just not going to come into handy. You'll have wasted your time learning it. And when you're in the future, when you're in God's new world that he's creating, you're going to have no need for manipulation. That kind of loving will not come in useful to you. You'll have wasted all of your life learning how to be good at it. And the same with hate. There's just not going to be hate in God's new world. So instead, we should be spending our time cultivating this, this virtue, this moral skill, this moral strength of loving another person like Christ has shown love to us. Loving God and loving our neighbors. And so to do this, virtue says, you've got to figure out what a person who's loving does, what they act like. And you've got to start making those kind of choices on a daily basis. And it will reinforce, it will transform your character. And so just like with faith and just like with hope, let's think through what are some practices, what are some habits, what are some patterns, what are some disciplines that might transform us into more loving people. I have five here. We'll go through them fast. There's surely, again, more than five, just like with the ones we list off for faith and with hope. This would probably be a good conversation for your loved ones, um, your friends, and your family. Um, but here are the five that I've, I've got for us this morning. The first would be generosity. Practicing generosity. Giving things away. Living with an open hand. Meeting the needs of others. Blessing other people. Being generous. I think if you're a generous person, if you do acts of generosity over and over and over and over again, it will have the effect of, again, transforming your character to where you're a more and more and more loving type of person. Now, the interesting thing about generosity um, in the scriptures is that it is a step beyond just giving away extra. Most of us, I think, how we view generosity is if at the end of the week we have $50 left over from what we've spent and what we wanted to do, we give that $50 away. 
which would surely be, be a good thing, surely be uh, at least a first step. But the scriptures, I mean, if you look at the portrait in the book of Acts with the early church being together, what they're doing is, is a little bit more than just that. They're actually selling things to give money to the poor, which means they're not giving away what they have extra. They're giving away what they already have to meet the needs of other people. They're sacrificing. They're being generous to the point where it hurts. They're giving up stuff of their own. They're giving up some of their own rights. So we, uh, I was talking with Jimmy earlier this week, and, and he suggested um, little things like maybe instead of eating lunch one day, you buy someone else's lunch. You don't eat, and you give that, that money, you buy it for somebody else, right? And, I mean, think about how that would reinforce in your mind and even in your body, right, this idea of generosity. I give up my rights for somebody else. We're generous, and, and even I think in the Christian sense, it's a sacrificial generosity. The second practice I have is community, okay? I'm living in context with other people, living life with them, eating with them, praying with them, reading the scriptures with them, sharing activities with them, living in community, which is no easy thing to do. Uh, when I talk to pastors who have larger churches than we are, um, when, you, when you get a bigger group, you've got to be a little less organic and a little more mechanical with how you plug people in. And so at a larger church, they'll have a list of small groups by age or by sex or um, however you want to organize them. And when someone new comes to the church, they'll say, you, this house with these people, okay, on this night. And they'll plug you in small groups. And it's funny because they, they'll all complain that that almost never really works very well. Uh, that usually will happen. Someone new will come to the church. They'll say, hey, you're in that small group. In a week or two weeks or three weeks, that person will come back and say, hey, can I get a new small group? I don't like those people. <laughs> They're not like me. We don't talk the same. We don't have the same interests. They have different backgrounds, things like that. Uh, and then they'll put them in another group. And two or three weeks later, they'll come back and say, yeah, I didn't like those people either. What else do you got? Uh, and so what happens is, is these people will bump around until they either quit on the whole idea of community. They say, eh, it's not for me. Uh, or... They live with it. They practice what, what I've got down here as my third, my third practice, my third habit, which is forgiveness. I think as we forgive other people, we become more and more and more loving. As we don't hold other people's sins against them, as we don't hold their evils um, against them, as we don't repay their evil with evil. Uh, oftentimes what you'll hear when someone's trying to forgive someone is they'll say, it's just eating me up on the inside. I mean, it's tearing me apart and inside. And my response is, good. That means you're probably on your way to forgiving them. That's what forgiveness does. That's the whole point of forgiveness, right? You're not going to repay them with the evil they've done to you. You're just going to what? Let it do its evil on you. That's how forgiveness works. A moral debt has been created. Someone has to pay that. You're saying, I'll pay it with my emotions and my energy, with my mental state. I will not put that back on you. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross, right? He's taking what's coming our way, death out of sin, and he's saying, instead of letting it go your way, I'll just let it do its work in me. And it kills him. It destroys him. It literally puts him into the grave so that it never reaches you and I. If Trevor punches me, okay, I can either punch him back, repay him, or I can just let my face hurt. Okay, this is how forgiveness works. It tears you up on the inside. I think that's a sign that you really are heading toward forgiveness. And one day, maybe those, those feelings, that angst, that torn upness inside won't be there anymore. I tell the, the youth that I work with, right, when, when someone apologizes to you, you don't say it's okay. That's not how apologies work. If it was okay, they wouldn't need to apologize. They wouldn't need to ask for forgiveness. When someone apologizes, you say, I forgive you. 
You can't apologize unless you, you can't forgive someone unless you name the evil, right? Unless you say, yes, that was wrong. You did something wrong against me. But that's how it's going to stay. You did it wrong against me, and the debt is now cleared. I will still treat you as if it never happened. And let whatever harm is created because of that stay with me. I'll let it work itself out in me. So community, generosity, forgiveness. The fourth one I think is a good one, um, and it would be meals. I think eating with other people is a way of cultivating love. Um, there's a uh, peace theory, which is if you want two people who don't like each other to start liking each other, make them eat together. <laughs> it's hard to really hate someone when you just eat together with them. Um, now, I put an asterisk clause uh, because, again, like, I teach high schoolers, and I, I, the asterisk would be unless you're at a lunch table in high school, okay? <laughs> I do believe that some sort of hatred can exist uh, on a daily kind of eating together at, at, at high school and on a, like, on a lunch table, okay, where you're forced to be around each other. But in the adult world, okay, where you get to choose where you eat and what you eat and who you eat with, I think it's hard to say mad at someone, to really hate them, to demonize them, right? I mean, imagine what you would take if you take these hateful groups who just spew hatred toward a stereotypical type of person, and they were forced to get to know somebody from that group, and they'd be transformed. They'd be like, oh, wow, that, that's a real human being with a real past, with real problems, with real pains, with real temptations, and this is their struggle. This is what they're dealing with. We live in kind of the hot pocket era, okay? When we eat dinner, we microwave it, eat in two minutes on the way in the car, right, wherever we're going. It used to be, in ancient cultures, and even other cultures still to this day, the meal is like one of the most important things you do in a day. It's this long, drawn-out thing with different courses, lots of drink, and lots of food, and you invite lots of people over, and you tell stories, and you laugh, and you sing, and you dance, and you eat this meal. I was walking a group through the book of Leviticus recently, and I was reminded, as I was studying to prepare, um, that sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the goal of it all was the meal between the worshiper and God. And this is why you get that phrase, right? Um, the, the burnt offering, the goat or the lamb, whatever it would be, would be a, a pleasing smell on the nostril of God. Because you're inviting him. You're saying, hey, I've got something for you to eat. Will you come be with me? Will you come um, build a relationship with me around the table? Now, Christians have a meal as well, right? Where we, we come and we are invited to join with Jesus. He offers himself to us at the table, his body and his blood. And we're united with other Christians around this meal. Again, we've kind of hot-pocketed communion um, to where uh, it's this little tiny little thing of grape juice and a little cracker, okay? And you unwrap it and you're by yourself. It's you and Jesus, right? It used to be a big meal where the community of believers would come together and they would laugh and they would tell stories and they would build relationships and they would tell the Jesus story and remember his death on their behalf and his resurrection, and it would be a way of building, cultivating love. Love both for Jesus who sacrificed his life for us and love for our neighbors around us. Eating. Uh, and then the fifth one, the last one we've got here would be social justice. Or I might just call it pick a cause. Okay? Pick a cause. Find something in the world that's not working the way it's supposed to. A pro tip, there's lots of them. Okay? There's a long list. Just find one. Find one that excites you. Find one that gets your blood pumping. Okay? There's lots of them to choose from. And then pour yourself out into that. Say, with whatever kind of resources or contacts or time that I have, I'm going to try to help fix that. I'm going to try to help um, bring relief and life to this situation. Um, we'll hear a story from Sam Smith uh, after communion, and then she has uh, kind of found that uh, in her life with sex trafficking in Houston. Uh, and she's pouring herself out right there, right now, and ministering to different women 
caught in that and, and finding life and, and beauty and, and God there. Uh, and so, yeah, pick a cause. I mean, whatever it could be. And then pour yourself out there. And by doing that, I think you're going to build, you're going to cultivate this skill, this, this virtue, this character strength of love in your life. Faith, hope, and love, Paul says, will last. These are the character traits, the strengths of character that will go on into eternity. And so we should now start to cultivate, start to practice, start to develop these character strengths. I'm going to end this morning with a quote from Tom Wright. And he says this. He says, Love is the language that Jesus spoke. And we're called to speak it so that we can converse with him, so we can talk with him. It's the food that they're going to eat in God's new world. So we better acquire the taste for it here and now. It's the music that God has written for all of his creatures to sing. And we're called to learn it and practice it now so as to be ready when the conductor brings down his baton. It's the resurrection life. And the resurrected Jesus calls us to begin living it with him and for him right now. Love is at the very heart of the surprise of hope and faith. People who truly hope as the resurrection encourage us to hope, and people who truly have faith the way that the resurrection encourages us to have faith, will be people enabled to love in a new way. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for uh, our faith family. Uh, we pray that uh, you would show us, reveal to us, uh, make manifest in our life ways that, that we can become more loving people, ways that we can uh, more and more reflect the love that you've shown us uh, on the cross through the grace that you've given us, uh, that we would be people uh, who, over time, um, and through our community, and through the help of your Spirit, would develop and mature this double love, that we would love you more and more, and that we'd love our neighbors more and more. Uh, we ask that you would do this, um, and that you do this powerfully among us. And in your Son's perfect name that we pray all these things, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.